Welcome to the Paul Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. Professor, folks are talking about Russian forces headed toward decisive defeat, not just in the north near Kiev, but also major areas of now Russian-controlled areas in the east. What's your take on the situation right now? First thing we can say is it's clear that Russia is not going to achieve the maximal gains or the maximal goal that it had for this operation. If you want to consider the maximal goal being regime change, being the annexation of Ukraine even, that that is clearly not what's going to be happening. But the next question is, okay, if that's not what's happening, does that mean they're going to lose? Does that mean they're retreating? They're withdrawing their forces? My answer would be no, it doesn't. And I base that on a few factors. First of all, just from the intelligence sources that I've read, and these are the public ones, these aren't anything like, you know, I don't have any type of proprietary information, but even the U.S. government has come out and has cautioned against interpreting any, quote, Russian troop movements, end quote, as indicative of retreat. So right now we have information that they are moving forces away from Kyiv. It looks like they are not going to try to take the capital. But what does that mean? Does that mean they're leaving the country completely? No. It could be that they're regrouping. There's reports they might be moving troops up to Belarus. There's reports that they're going to try to consolidate their gains in eastern Ukraine. There's a lot of things we don't know. But I think what we do know is that the concerns about Russia being able to overtake the country, possibly induce regime change, for the time being at least, doesn't seem like it would be possible. It would require something dramatic to happen for that to be achieved. What would be in a dramatic thing? First of all, if suddenly Russia received massive amounts of assistance from another country, and namely if like Belarus decided to send a bunch of troops in, but that doesn't seem Another one could be if suddenly Ukraine was cut off from all the assistance that they've been receiving, but that doesn't seem likely. So I think that despite the idea that Russia might be losing, that they might be retreating, they might be moving troops to perhaps in an acknowledgement that this is not a this was not a good idea, this operation. I think that currently what we're seeing is just more of the middle, that this is the middle of the conflict. They're moving troops around and it's still, in my view, does not indicate that there's an end, immediate end in sight. You've talked about an off-ramp for Putin. Is there any historical precedence for the U.S. ever taking that sort of approach? Yes, there is. The question is, the U.S. has done this. Um, Many countries have sought to give some sort of off-ramp. The key is, what would the off-ramp look like in this case here? Now, there's been already some proposals that have been put out there, including proposals apparently from the Ukrainian government, from President Zelensky himself, such as a promise of neutrality, uh, that they would never join NATO. However, that was never really on the table to begin with. And so it's not clear that that would be enough for Putin to say, yes, I am satisfied with that type of offer. Therefore, I will end this conflict. Other potential things that are on the table would be to allow Russia to have control or to even annex the eastern provinces and to maintain 
the annexation of Crimea. Of course, that does not also seems like something that Ukraine would want to sign off to, nor would it be something that you would think the West would want to sign on to. West, in this case, being referenced to the United States, NATO, Eastern Europe, or Western European countries that are assisting Ukraine, because there would be concern about the precedent it would set. So the potential things that could be on the table, at least the time being, that would allow Putin to say, you know what? Yes, I this, this would be satisfying, even though I'm not going to accomplish my ultimate goals, I'm willing to take this and end the conflict. And that's kind of what we mean by an offering, is, is offering something that would allow Putin to say, that's good enough, let's go ahead and end this. But currently, the type of things that I could see being offered, given the current dynamics on the ground, the kind of things I would see being offered, as I just mentioned, I just can't see either of those things being acceptable to Russia or being acceptable to Ukraine or the supporters of Ukraine. So that's the one huge piece of context that has to be kept in mind. We're talking about off-ramps. Now, having said that, it is important to recognize that any type of end to this conflict will entail some sort of negotiated settlement. I think that is something that even though currently it doesn't look like there's anything acceptable both sides, eventually there will have to be some sort of settled deal. The reason why is because that is just simply how wars end. There's very few examples of wars ending where one side is completely defeated by the other side. There's always some sort of negotiated settlement. And I illustrated this recently on Twitter with an example, an extreme, intended to be extreme example of the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis Japan during World War II. And the reason why I say this is an extreme example is because this was a case by 1945, and especially by August of 1945, where Japan was clearly in a losing position. They were being devastated. They just had atomic bombs dropped on them. The Soviet Union had entered the war. There was really no case to be made that Japan could win this war. And in fact, they were on the path, if you will, towards annihilation, at least annihilation of the state, potentially even more of their citizens being killed. So there was just no way that Japan's going to win this. And it was clear the United States was going to be the victor and that the U.S. with their allies were going to be the victor. And so this that's one thing that makes this extreme, is that this is a case where there's just no debate. There wasn't even debate on the part of the Japanese government. They knew that they were losing. This was going to be lost. The other thing that makes this an extreme example is the United States, along with its allies, had made the policy for Japan to end the war. They had made the policy, quote, unconditional surrender, meaning we will not accept any sort of settlement, any sort of negotiated deal. You will have to be defeated. You will have to completely accept your defeat in order for this war to be over. That is what they meant by unconditional surrender. They literally had in the Potsdam Declaration, it literally said, if you do not accept this, you will face ultimate destruction. <laughs> that was the phrase that was in the declaration. So those two things make this very extreme. This is clearly a case where the Japan's going to lose. And it's a case where the US and its allies have said, we are not accepting any type of deal. And yet the US did accept the deal in order to just get the thing done. Now it wasn't maybe a humongous concession. It depends on your perspective. But one thing that Japan, that the Japanese government wanted to ensure was the continued status and position of the emperor. And they were concerned that the provisions that have been put down the, in the Potsdam de Declaration, and especially given the prominence of the emperor in terms of communicating to the public about the war, there was a lot of concern that removal of the royal dynasty was going to be one of the things the United States and its allies would do once they actually defeated Japan. And the reason why is because the Potsdam Declaration even called out removal of individuals who have, quote, deceived the Japanese people. And so the perception was that that was in reference to the emperor. And so the Japanese 
government put forward in a communique, they said, we will accept defeat. We will accept the ending of conflict if or on the condition that you ensure the status of the emperor. Now, that is a qualification to unconditional surrender. And of course, the one view you could take to that is, well, no, we, we said unconditional surrender. There is no like qualification. There is no deal for this. But the United States government decided to agree to that. Um, now, they agreed to it in a very conditional way. They said, well, the status will be determined and we'll work with it. And it was left up to MacArthur. And there was a lot of other, you know, a lot of historians have written about the exact procedures went about. But they didn't come out and say, nope, nope, unconditional surrender. They said, okay, we can look into that. And so that is what allowed the fighting to end. And so I use that as an extreme example. It's intentionally extreme. It was funny when I posted, some people were like, well, Japan surrendered because they were dropped, had atomic bombs dropped on them. It's like, yes, that's exactly the point. They were in no condition to ask for a condition. And yet they did ask for a condition. And there was no reason per se for the U.S. to accept that condition. And yet the U.S. did. And the reason why is because they wanted to end the fighting. They didn't want to have to conduct an operation of actually landing troops in Japan to fight, to try to take the territory. They said, let's just go ahead and end this thing. And so what that point to is, again, it's an extreme example that illustrates that that is actually how wars end. Wars almost always end with some sort of settlement, some sort of agreement. And there is no reason to think that the Ukraine-Russian war, despite some of the commentary that I've seen out there, there is no reason to think that this war is going to end any differently. A negotiated settlement inevitably means less death. The problem is, in order to get people around the negotiating table, you have to, at some stage, accept each other's positions. In this particular case, everyone seems to be portraying themselves as an aggrieved party. And you've got people like John Mearsheimer saying, well, it's America's fault. They brought all this on. How do you unpick that in order to get people around the table for a genuine peace talk? phrase that you just used there was genuine peace talk, right? That that is the the word genuine is is the most important word there because there have been peace talks. There's been ceasefire talks. They're going on right now. But the question is, and indeed this is a question not just that observers have had. I think this is a question that even members of the Ukrainian government have who've been involved in these is how sincere are these negotiations? Or is this just an effort on the part of Russia to buy time? Uh, which is actually something that we know from a lot of IR scholarship that oftentimes calling in mediators, calling in some sort of negotiation is really just used or even the implementation of a ceasefire is not a marker of the end of the conflict. It's more of a halftime break. It's used by a lot of times forces to rearm themselves, re-equip themselves, even if that's made as a condition for the ceasefire that you will not do this, parties still do this, which leads into whole other issues about the nature of international law and agreements and whether they can be believed. But that's really the key is there have been negotiations going on right now, but they have not been genuine. They've not been sincere. And the question is even on both sides, it's like, to what extent are the sides actually willing to make meaningful concessions? And this is not to say that Ukraine should make meaningful concessions, right? They are obviously the party that's been attacked here. But to what extent is Ukraine in a position where they feel like to end this fighting, we will give up anything. We'll give up any kind of rights to Crimea or to Eastern provinces or anything like that. I don't think they're in a position, going back to what I was saying earlier, they're not in a position to do that. They're not in a position where they feel like that is something they want to do or should do, nor I think is Russia in a position where they're willing to just simply say a declaration of neutrality is enough for them to stop fighting. I really think that they're in both sides are in a situation where they don't feel like the conditions on the ground merit making meaningful concessions right now. 
And then if you bring in the United States into this, if you bring NATO into this, and of course, the countries that have been helping Ukraine, you have to ask, well, what's their view on this? And I think that their view is is very much in line with the view that Ukraine should not be making any type of meaningful territorial concessions, at least right now. And the reason why is because there would be concerns about the precedent that would set. What kind of precedent would that set in terms of, okay, if you use aggression and you use maximal aggression, we're willing to give you something in order to just stop, right? And what could that do in terms of setting a precedent for other countries, other countries that have territorial disputes, say like a China, or what kind of precedent would that even set for Russia itself, being like, okay, well, we did this, but what's to stop us from coming back and doing it again in a few years' time? So I think that's why right now there's just not space, if you will. The bargaining space seems closed to me in terms of what could be an actual deal that could be agreed to. In some sense, aren't peace talks during a conflict also a propaganda tool that people can use domestically to say, look, we are trying to do this peacefully. We're sorry your sons are being killed in battle. We're trying to settle it, but we have to keep on fighting. I think there is something to that. That there, I mean, it, it depends, though. It really does depend. And the reason why I say that is because if you go back to World War One and you look at the attempts at peace negotiations during World War One, oftentimes these were not highly publicized, precisely because the public sentiment was we do not want to be negotiating with the other side. And you can also think about the attempts at peace agreements with Nazi Germany during World War Two. Similar thing. These were not necessarily widely publicized. I'm, of course, not referring to Munich, and but Munich was kind of before the major, the onset of major war in Europe. But during the time of, there was a lot of overtures, especially in the UK. There was a lot of ideas of, should we strike a deal with Hitler? Especially when British forces were stuck at Dunkirk. It's like, hey, you know, should we try to strike a deal to kind of end this thing? And that was something that was debated, but it was also not a popular view. And so I think that this idea of using peace negotiations as as kind of a domestic propaganda tool, I think under certain conditions can work. And I think that under the conditions of maybe Russia as being the aggressor here, that it could work because they can spin this as saying, hey, look, we are trying to reach a deal while these operations are going on. We are not trying to just totally annihilate the country. At least that's the argument they can put forward. So I think in that case, it would work. And it obviously is something that's well known in Ukraine that there's attempts at these talks. So I think that in this case here, this is something that people want. But I just want to highlight that there are times where actually, no, being involved in peace negotiations with the opposing party would actually not be popular. I mean, the most recent current example of that was, this is part of the reason why there was, it was so difficult to reach an agreement to end the war in Afghanistan, that it was like, well, who are you going to negotiate with? And if you're going to negotiate with the Taliban, isn't this who we've been fighting for 20 years? Why would we want to sit down and negotiate with them? Now, eventually they did, but even if you look at the final agreement, this was something I found so fascinating about the final agreement was time and time again, they use this phrase of the, about how the two parties are the United States government. And then I can't remember exactly how it's phrased, but it's essentially the Taliban, which is not recognized by the U.S. as a sovereign entity. And that it's a really long phrase. Again, you can look up the agreement and it's used every single time they say the two parties. They say the United States and the Taliban, who is not recognized by the United States as a governing party. And, and it's like said time and time again. My point is bringing that up is to say that that shows how much like U.S. felt like it was in a position where we can't, it's difficult for us to negotiate with these folks because there's going to be people either in the government or in the public who are not going to be happy with us essentially recognizing 
democracy. The Taliban is a legitimate party that we should be talking to. As a way out, what is the likelihood or prospects of petition? And if there was a petition, where would the new Berlin Wall be? The partition of Ukraine is something that is on the table. Now, it's not right in the middle of the table right now. <laughs> I think it's on the table. I think it's on the sides. I think that Russia would obviously, well, I, I wouldn't even say obviously. Let's not say obviously, because I think at first Russia's ambitions were greater than just simply controlling the Donbas, for example, or maintaining control of Crimea. I think that at first Russia had much grander ambitions towards that. So I wouldn't even say that Russia has put partition fully on the table as something that would be acceptable for them. And then obviously you can look at Ukraine and say that you know, they're not going to be keen on partition either. I mean, said that though, it was, it was actually interesting. This, this brings up something that was on uh, Twitter yesterday. There are people who are very vocal, especially in the U.S. government, very vocal about how we, you know, we should not be asking Ukraine to negotiate with Russia. We need to be pushing hard. And some prominent individuals in the foreign policy space were talking about this, tweeting about this. And what was interesting was there was a member of the Ukrainian parliament who responded to this and uh, her response got a lot of attention because she said, you know, in her response, and it's a reasonable response, she said, well, anybody who's saying that Ukraine should give up part of its territory in order to end this conflict should ask themselves, what part of your country would you give up? in order to end a conflict. And it's a very reasonable response. But what was funny is towards an American audience, there were suddenly people from Ohio saying, well, we give up Michigan. And there were people from the South saying, well, you can have New York City. And other people would be like, oh, take Florida. You know, I mean, so it was, I don't think her comment had the effect that she thought it was going to be. And a lot of people were like, oh, no, I can think of all sorts of places I'd rather not have in my country. So, you know, but the point is, is that it, it shows just how contentious this would be for Ukraine to actually put partition on the table where you have a, a member of their parliament who's saying, look, this is just unacceptable. This would be unacceptable. So I think it is something that's on the table. My sense is it could there is the possibility that that could end up being what the final settlement looks like, that it would be, if not legal, even a de facto control of Russia, of say, eastern provinces maintaining control of Crimea. But right now, again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, I just can't see Ukraine, Ukrainian government finding that in any way acceptable. If that does happen, do we end up in a new Cold War? You could see a scenario, absolutely, where much like Germany, at the end of World War II was partitioned. And then you could essentially even think of the Cold War in Europe as a continuation of a post-World War II stalemate. You know, that basically the Western US, British, and eventually French forces made it all the way to Western Germany. The Soviet forces made it all the way to Eastern Germany. And they decided, well, we're going to stop here and we'll split up this country. And then you go for 45 years asking who's going to actually withdraw first, right? Who's going to now, now we've decided to partition, how are we going to withdraw? I could see something very similar to where, especially if you look at these potential retreat or troop movements that the Russians are following, that if they end up moving their forces and say, trying to consolidate their position in Eastern Ukraine, that's going to create a situation where I could see both Kyiv as well as NATO allies who are supporting Kyiv saying, we're not going to try to support an offensive to retake those provinces. And so what you're going to end up with, and this is kind of the situation that would lead to that de facto partition, where it wouldn't be 
so much that it would be officially recognized as a partition, but you would end up in kind of this Cold War scenario, except with the difference being that the parties did agree to actually separate and divide Germany. But the way that it eventually was shaped and was carried out was not consistent, I think, with the way that at least some of the parties envisioned that partition would go. And I could see something similar here to where Essentially, Russia maintains control of eastern Ukraine, and then western Ukraine is under the support of NATO. And then you have kind of this new Cold War standoff, except now it's been shifted the center of Germany, the center of So I think that it is. Uh,